and we rode the subway and trains and such, and it's possible to go up to catch a subway and stand there for 10 or 15 minutes waiting and never hear anybody speak in English. And then, of course, when they do speak in English, it's hard for me to understand what they're saying. <laughs> it, it really was an experience. It's, it's just uh, like nothing in America. I've been all over the states, but I've never seen anything like New York City. But we had such a great move of the Lord. We had uh, a big rally service on Friday night. We rented the Evangelical Free Church out on Long Island. It seats about 1,500. Just recently, over 300 people were baptized out there in Jesus' name. So they got a lot of new ones. And we just had the time of our life. Most of the new people that have come in have been Spanish and Jamaicans. And the Jamaican people really worship. I mean, they really worship. They really do worship. As I preached, I had to tell the people, now just be quiet a minute. I've got to finish this. <clears throat> it just, uh, it got like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> it just, uh, it was fantastic, though. Now, I don't know who forgot to get my glass of water. But, uh, <clears throat> I think the man that gave me the big cheese cup. <laughs> My throat is sore. I have been uh, preaching day and night, several times during the day, teaching mostly. Preaching in the evening, and I didn't get back home until 11 o'clock last night. Thank the Lord for the time change. <clears throat> I want to read something about Jesus and his parents from the second chapter of the book of Luke, uh, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Thank you, Brother Mike. And when he was... Twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Evidently, what's taking place here is that they were traveling with a group of people. And for some mysterious reason, Jesus was just overlooked. He was left behind. Verse 44, And they supposing him to have been in the company went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple. And I stop there because the emphasis is not on what Jesus was doing, but on the fact that they left him behind. And the reason why that they left him behind is because they just supposed 
that Jesus would leave with them and go with them on their journey. And I think that this particular scripture fits a lot of people's thinking that when they journey down life's road, they make so many suppositions in the area of their relationship with God. They just kind of assume to suppose it simply means that you make an assumption. Now, this assumption could be correct. However, in this case, it was incorrect, and it can be incorrect as well as true in many cases. There are a lot of people that think that Jesus is with them, and he indeed is not with them. Now, to clarify that point, the Lord is near all of us because the Spirit of God is responsible for all of us living and breathing and moving. We cannot live or breathe or move or have our being if God was not with us. But I'm talking about a personal relationship where God is with you. See, when salvation comes to us, the promise is given, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The Holy Ghost, which is the Comforter, promised to go alongside of us and grant to us the comfort and the assistance that we need as we walk down life's road. But we do know that even though God grants life, that when it comes to his personal relationship with people in the area of salvation, that it is possible for people to make an assumption that God is just going to go with them and be with them regardless of how, what they do, regardless of what their behavior is. And God does not go with them. Now, there's, there are a lot of people that uh, have a question about whether they're actually saved or not. This is a big, big question in people's lives. I, I have uh, been involved in conversations with a lot of people who argue with me that they knew they were saved. Then after we consider the word of the Lord for a while, then they begin to think maybe they weren't saved. And then they opened up and made a true confession the actual feelings of their heart, they said, truthfully, I don't know that I've ever been saved. It's always been a big question mark in my mind. In other words, I'm living my life with the basic assumption that God is good and God is kind and God likes to do good things for people. So evidently, I suppose, or I must be saved. But truthfully, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know if I'm saved. Now, maybe I'm talking to someone today who fits in that particular class. You just don't know. 
I'm here to tell you that you can know that you're saved. You can know that Jesus is with you. You can know that He has gone with you and that He will not leave you and He will not forsake you. Local assemblies are filled with people who just assume that if they sign a church roll or if they uh, attend regularly or if they have a basic fundamental belief that there is a God, that, that they're, they're saved. And yet if you ask them how did the Lord save you, they can't point to any particular place in which they know they found the Lord. They can't point to any particular thing that they did. They, they just don't know. Now, I've talked to a good number of pastors here in this city. And I just asked them, well, how, what do you tell people that ask you if they want to be saved? He said, well, truthfully, most people never ask you that. You just tell them that they need to start the church and, and they, they, they come. I talked to a pastor who pastors a large assembly here in this city. And I asked him, well, what, what, what is salvation? What do, you, what do you classify salvation as? Well, he just never gave much thought to that. Just, uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, we, we teach catechism and uh, we confirm people. But I'm talking about a man who walks in your assembly that says he never went to catechism, he was never confirmed, never attended church, and yet he wants to be saved. What do you tell him? So, well, I don't, I don't know that I ever had anybody to do that. I don't, I don't know that ever, anybody ever asked me that, so I never really gave much thought to that. But surely you must know and instruct people how to be saved. He said, well, they just start coming, and after a given length of time, you know, it varies from church to church. If people come, they, uh, they make the assumption that they're members, and then you officially take them in as members. And, but does that assure them that their name is written on the Lamb's Book of Life? See, the Bible tells me in the book of Revelation that there will be a day in which all the dead, both small and great, shall stand before God. And whosoever's name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire, which burneth forever and ever and ever. So, surely, somehow, you've given thought to a man's name being placed on the Lamb's book of life. Well, I guess maybe I really never thought of that. Now, truthfully, and I'm not, I'm certainly not here to throw stones, but that's pathetic. That's just, that's just almost unbelievable. It just blows my mind to think that any intelligent minister who reads the Bible wouldn't run across some scriptures that would challenge his thinking 
or challenges practice. I mean, how could you, how could you read through the Gospels? So I began to point out certain things in the book of Acts. He says, well, you see, here's the difference between you and I. I do not believe that the Bible is inspired of the Lord. In other words, you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. He said, well, some of it is. I, I believe that some of it is, but some of it isn't. But what do you believe is the Word of the Lord? Well, I believe that parts of the gospel, the teachings of Jesus, I believe that's the Word of the Lord. But but Paul's writings, I can't accept that. I, don't, I believe the book of Acts is a is a history book, and I'm not for sure that the history was recorded accurately. Then, then, then this whole business of church must be, it, there must be a foundation upon, upon which you validate your existence. In other words, what are you predicating all of this upon? Well, I never really thought of that. Now, <clears throat> you, can, you can look into a lot of non-religious, a lot of non-Christian religions, and, and all of them have a basic foundation upon which they validate what they're doing. The Muslims, the Buddhists, all of these, they have a foundation upon which they build, and that is, that is the validity of, of, of that movement. But if you don't believe the Bible is the word of the Lord, do you believe that Jesus ever lived? Well, sure I do. Do you believe that Jesus was God in the flesh? Well, that's what he, he said. Well, you take it out, out of the Bible, but you don't believe the Bible is inspired. Well, parts of it I do. But what causes you to believe that certain parts are right and certain parts are wrong? Well, I don't know. In other words, you just take what you want and you leave what you don't want. Well, I guess that's it. Well then, sir, don't come crying on our doorstep because we got somebody from your congregation. I'm telling you about something that actually happened. This pastor, pastors a large church downtown, walked out and saw all these names back here. He said, what are all these names? I said, these are people who have been baptized in Jesus' name. We believe in the new birth experience. He sat there and looked at all of these people. Where are you getting all these people? I said, well, from all walks of life, many of these people were non-religious. But some of them had made an assumption all their life until somebody challenged them to read the Bible. Now Jesus says in the book of John, the 6th chapter, He said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, for they are they which testify of Me. And so we challenge people to search the Scripture, to read the Bible. 
Because one of the most miserable feelings that you can have is doubt. Because doubt fosters fear. And the Bible says fear hath torments. And if you want to see a miserable person, you find a person who doubts what he's doing. You come to church and you don't really know that it's right. You become miserable. Even a Christian who starts backsliding when he begins to doubt his experience or his relationship with God, he becomes extremely miserable. He's dissatisfied and he's miserable. But this is not only true in, in, in the religious structure, this is also true in anything you're involved in. If you work on a job, you become dissatisfied with the job. You begin to doubt whether that is the, the vocation for you. You are literally miserable until you make up your mind as to what you want to do. And any time that you are in a quandary about anything, you're miserable. Now, let me just point out something here, though, that's, that's very, very important. Any time you make a decision, whether it be right or wrong, if that decision comes out of frustration and out of misery, you will automatically feel good about it, whether it's a right decision or not. Because you momentarily remove pressure from you. Let's say all of a sudden you decide you want to, let's say a new car. But you don't know what car to get. And you just look at General Motors and you look at Ford and you look at Chrysler. And you look at Mercedes and all this. I don't know if I should put that one in the category of some of these, but... But you look at all of this, and all of a sudden you decide. I mean, you you have been wrestling with it. You can't sleep at night. All of a sudden you decide, yes, I'll get the Ford. So you get the Ford. Now, once you sign your name on the dotted line, put the money up front, you're going to feel good about it, whether you've made the right decision or not. Why? Because you momentarily take yourself out of that pressure syndrome that you were in. This is the reason why that some people, they get stirred up religiously speaking, all of a sudden they go into a church where that church believes and teaches the Bible or not because they had this great big problem in their mind about whether they were right or wrong with God once they joined the church, they felt good about it. Now, the problem is that the misery returns when you begin to suffer from the consequences of a bad decision. After a while, you become dissatisfied again. The misery returns. I think all of you know what I'm talking about. And you understand because you have made decisions. But you see, the important thing is that 
when, when you make a decision to live for God, you've got to understand that there is a tempter, the devil, that's in the world. And the devil will come by occasionally and tempt you and challenge your thinking. Now, when you have built your relationship with God according to the Scripture, you always have the Scripture to refer to. Now let's just take for an example, let's say that you go buy some, some commodity on the, on the open market, and uh, let's say that you have to assemble this thing. It comes disassembled, so you have to assemble it. And, and you get it all together, and you get all the little uh, integral parts together, but it doesn't, something malfunctions. It's, it's not quite the way that uh, it, it ought to be. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't satisfy, in which it doesn't meet your expectations. Well, what you do, you go back and read the directions. And, and, and you see there is a comfort that comes when you know that the thing has been assembled the way that the directions state. So you know the problem's not in the product. The problem is in the operator. And, and this happens a lot, e- even in the truth. See, people, pe- people become dissatisfied sometimes with God because of, 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 uh, of their relationship with God. And, and the devil comes by and tempts them. You see, you can go back and look in the book and you know... Then, that if a problem has occurred, it, it's not in the product that you received, it's in, it's in the operator. In other words, God himself moves in and through you. And the problem's not in God, then the problem's in you. You follow what I'm saying? Now, this business, assume, assuming that you're saved... Is very very dangerous. Now let me tell you the reason why that it's dangerous. If you will turn with me to Mark the eighth chapter, we'll just we'll just take a look at the teachings of Jesus. Mark the eighth chapter, verse thirty four, and when he had called. The people unto him with his disciples also he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Oh, listen to me. If you've ever heard me say anything, there is nothing in the world that would destroy you more than selfishness. And this is the reason why that religion is the, I say Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches total self-denial. Now when you mean when I say self-denial, that is denying of oneself. In other words, you reach the point in which you realize I cannot become my own redeemer. I am not good enough to be saved. My life is where it is simply because I have tried separate and apart from God. And, and Christianity teaches a total Submission and giving up of every earthly commodity. 
Now that doesn't mean that God strips you and robs you and you have nothing the rest of your life. Quite the contrary. When you transfer all of your earthly goods into the hands of God, God allows you to become a steward and you can operate your life with more luxury and ease than you have in the past. I really believe that. I really believe that. Verse 35, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, I made reference about being in New York City, and I'm here to tell you I have never seen a place like that. There are so many things that just just say big, big, big bucks. The World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, the garden, the court area. You walk out there and you can't believe. You say, my, all of this glass and stainless steel and millions and billions of dollars. Unbelievable. Where did people get so much money? You know, you, 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 but, but see, New York City is just one little spot on this globe. There are many cities, fascinating cities that denote wealth and prosperity. Tokyo, Japan is one of the most prosperous cities in the world. A very modern city where billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent. But Jesus said, if you became so wealthy that you owned it all, I mean, if you held a monopoly and all of earth's wealth was in your hands, he said, what have you profited? If, if you lose your soul. See, what he's really saying is there, there is no way that you can put a price tag on your soul. What is your soul? According to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, verse 23, man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. Two-thirds of man is inward and one-third is outward. Paul puts it this way. He said, though the outer man perish, in other words, the flesh. Now you know that there's more to you than just flesh. We talked about this last Sunday. You, you know there's more to you. H- have you ever been walking down the street and without hearing a word, a sound, or anything, all of a sudden you sense that somebody was behind you? H- have you ever been maybe in your house and you walk through and you sense that somebody was at the door even though you didn't hear the knock and you didn't hear the doorbell? And you see, because see, man is more than just flesh. And and when you lay your body down on this earth and, and it's buried, you're going to continue to live someplace. 
So, so the, the flesh is the house, the tabernacle. It's the dwelling of the true you. That will live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's going to do that. And Jesus is saying, if in your allotted years on the planet earth, if you became so successful and so prosperous that you could own all the world, but then you didn't secure life's greatest commodity, your soul, you're a fool. Jesus talked about the, the, the rich farmer. The rich farmer was a man who was very prosperous. He built barns and bigger barns and brought in crops. And then all of a sudden, he decided he'd lean back and take ease. He said, soul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But the Lord spoke to him and said, thy fool. In other words, he only looked at the external. If wealth would bring happiness, America would be laughing its ribs out. But we have more miserable, wretched people in America than any place you'd visit. Because prosperity alone will not bring it. You see, we're so interested in something that's different, something new, some gourmet food, to stuff in our bodies to make us feel good, that we forget that the inner man needs to be fed also. And while you're building houses and laying up bank accounts to secure something for the flesh... The soul is being deprived of its need, and this is where your unhappiness is coming in. It's much more important, friend, that, that you allow your soul to feel secure. Inside, you become confident inside. That, that, that you don't just walk through life supposing that everything's all right. So Jesus is saying, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? This is so very important. Luke the 16th chapter, Jesus gives an example of what happens when a man dies. Luke the 16th chapter, verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died... And he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Now Abraham's bosom was a Jewish 
term that denoted paradise or a place of rest for people who were at peace and rest with God when they walked on the earth. The rich man also died. He was buried. His body was buried. The Bible says when a man dieth, the spirit goeth back to God which gives that spirit. So every man will appear when he dies before God. Now what happened was this man was not saved. He never thought about being saved as far as we know. And in hell... He lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. In other words, he lifted up his eyes in hell. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Let me ask you this. Just how real is the inner man? Where was this rich man's tongue? If you dug up his body, you would find his tongue was still in his mouth. But the Bible says in hell, he was seeking water to touch his tongue. In other words, what I'm saying is that the inner man is just as real and personable and has needs just as much as the outer flesh. For he has eyes to see, and tongues to taste, and ears to hear, even though he's a spiritual being. So he wanted some water to dip wanted Lazarus, rather, to dip his finger in water and touch his tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. Now when a man dies today, he goes into hell, but his body rests in the ground. But in the book of Revelation, the man comes out of hell and reunites with the body and is then cast into the lake of fire Body, soul, and spirit forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, we turned our clock back. We saved an hour. Well, we really didn't save it because we lost it in the spring. We just got it back. But you see, since the fourth day of creation, God has put the sun and the moon in order for us to gauge duration. You cannot tell time without some instrument to measure it. So the sun and the moon serve for days and nights and seasons. Now if you left the planet Earth, and you went to Mercury, which is closer to the sun, you will find that a year on Mercury is not as long as a year on the Earth. And the reason why is because the rotation. It's, it's closer in 
the circumference is less and the day and night's less. And if you go to some of the outer planets, you will find that some of them travel slower in a larger radius or circumference. And so a year on Pluto would be much, 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 much longer than it is on the planet Earth. But if we all lived out there, we'd still have the sun and the moon to measure duration. But you will notice when eternity rolls around that God takes humanity away from the planet Earth and some are cast into the lake of fire away from all sources of light. The Bible calls it outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And there is absolutely no way in which duration can be measured. It's like God just allows people who doesn't want Him and doesn't want to take advantage of Him and doesn't want eternal life and they like sin and they like iniquity. God allows them to go their way so they never see a sun up and they never see a sun down and the moon never shines so romantically in the splendor of the night. And there's nothing but weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and no way to measure duration. And so consequently the night never ends. Never ends. And if you will take a look at the holy city, the other place, the paradise that God has prepared for his people. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, in the midst of the city, there is no light, or that means there is no sun. For God himself is the light of the city, and there will never be a sundown in heaven. Praise God. So God takes his people also and removes them to a place in which time cannot be measured. Because there will be no sun and there will be no moon. And so it's all daylight. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Never ending. Because there's nothing to stop it. Because there's always a God to serve as the light. Praise God, praise God. And your existence on the planet earth, according to the scripture, is designed for one purpose, and that is to decide and make preparations for eternity and where you want to go. How long you live on the planet earth? Some 30, some 40, some 50, some 60, some 70? But that's just a little while compared to eternity. There's no way that I can describe eternity. You take a comet like Halley's Comet that comes to the earth once every, or inside of the earth every, what? 
76 years. Here's a man that knows his science. And it just travels in outer space. It has a fixed orbit. If you want something to just blow your mind, just start reading about the universe. It just it blows my mind. But it does have a fixed orbit. And it's traveling around some major source or gravitational point. All of which at this particular time, no one is really for sure. We know that it comes into our solar system. Into our immediate one. And we know that it will return. And we can figure out the diameter and such. But it just even blows the mind of the scientist. But you see, eternity, you're removed from all measurable means. And you have no way to calculate duration. None at all. Now if you're in heaven, it's fantastic. Fantastic. But you see, the greater the joy, the greater the sorrow when you rotate to the opposite end of the spectrum. It just works that way. And so in, in hell, it's forever and ever and ever. How long will you be in hell if you don't serve God? If the earth was one gigantic stainless steel ball and a simple little sparrow flew through our universe and brushed its wings, up against the earth once each thousand years and continue to do it until the whole planet earth was worn away by his brush. You would still be in hell. You may say, that seems unfair. It does seem unfair. That's the reason why Jesus Christ came into the world. To show you he loved you. So that you could make a rational decision. Because he does not want you to die lost. But for some reason people just. They get involved in their, their sinfulness. When you really calculate some of the things. That's keeping you from going head over heels for Jesus. If you would rationally sit down and put it on paper like you'd figure out a math problem and you saw what you were exchanging for eternal life, you'd have to calculate that you're the biggest fool that ever walked on the face of the earth. There's no getting around it. This is the reason why that a sinner suffers from insanity. Doesn't the Bible constantly inform the Christians, be sober? That's what it's talking about. 
In other words, don't act like a drunk man over issues in life. You may say, wow, Pastor, you're making this sound really important. There is no way that I can make it sound as important as it really is. Do you understand how wealthy you would be if you owned the planet Earth? Do you understand if you just own half of Madison, you could write your ticket on this earth? But what if you own the whole world? But Jesus said, then lose your soul. He said, what have you profited? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is the reason why that you find Situations like you see in Acts the 8th chapter. All of you have heard me preach on this. Most all of you have. Uh, we talk about Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 2, Acts 19. We, we talk about people receiving the Holy Ghost, which is the Spirit of the Lord. And a lot of people say, well, I did this. My conscience didn't bother me. Well, the reason why is because your, you see, your conscience only denotes certain things, and, and your conscience can go out of whack and not read right. Have you ever draw, driven by a bank and you just had your radio on, they said 68 degrees, and all of a sudden you look up and, and the sun's been shining on the thermometer there, and... and and the bank says it's 82 degrees. You said it can't be 82 degrees because it was 68 degrees five minutes ago. See, that's the way your conscience is. You can have your conscience seared with a hot iron. And true repentance brings about a carefulness or it brings the conscience back to life. What clearing of yourself. In other words, you clean up yourself inside. Oh, what a beautiful feeling. When you're clear inside. What indignation. Indignation is righteous anger. You don't hate sinners. But you hate sin. What fear. In other words there is a respect and a fear for God. And God's house. And the principles of God that's built up inside of you when you repent. What vehement desire. There is a hunger. Jesus said he that hungereth and thirsteth after righteousness shall be, shall be filled. What zeal? In other words, you become very zealous for the things of God. What revenge? In other words, you want to you become a devil chaser instead of having the devil chase you. Now, some people interpret that because that's such a good experience to be salvation. That's what, this is what happened when they repented in Acts the 8th chapter. Now, they, didn't interpret, they did not interpret it for salvation, but... They experienced it. There was great joy in the city. And there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom, gave, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying that this man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. 
And when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, when they asked him what they ought to do, he said, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now these people had already repented. Did they have an experience with God? Listen, there was great joy when they repented. And you see what happens in a lot of churches. Because people come in and they feel very, very sorry over the fact that they have not given their life to God. They do ask God to forgive them and some of them truly repent. And they feel good about it. But because that the whole truth is not taught in many religious sects, then what happens? Because that, that these religious sects do not teach the full truth, then the people are not led to anything deeper than just that experience. So they say, well, I felt so good, I must be saved. Must be saved. I think I'm saved. I suppose I'm saved. But I don't really know. Well, you see, Philip went ahead and baptized these people. But if you notice what happens, the Bible tells us in verse 15, who when they were come down, speaking of Peter and John, for they heard that these people had been baptized, they, they came down there to do something. The Bible says in verse 16, for yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, these people were baptized, but they had not received the Holy Ghost. Now the apostles were so careful in this area, they were not going to make an assumption on anything as great as a man's soul. You see, there were multitudes of people in Samaria... But if you single them out, every single soul, from the least to the greatest, as far as the man-evaluated man, from the least to the greatest, every single soul was more important than the whole wide world to the apostles. Now, where did they get that conscientiousness? Where did they get that carefulness? They had rubbed shoulders with Jesus. They heard the story of Lazarus and the rich man. They heard his admonition. They heard his parable about the talents and such. They heard that the unprofitable servant was to be cast into outer darkness. They heard all of that. They heard the prophecy concerning the last days. They knew that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And if you make the wrong decision and you want to live for the devil, you can go with the devil. And they were not going to make an assumption that people, just because they were leaping and shouting and praising the Lord, that they were saved. We're going to do that. And so as a result, the Bible says, verse 17, They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. How did they know they received the Holy Ghost? When Simon saw that through the laying on the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Because you see, Jesus had told them to go in Jerusalem and tarry until they themselves were endued with power from on high. In Luke the 24th chapter, Jesus said, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, 
But go ye into the city of Jerusalem and tarry until you be endued with power from on high. Did they go to Jerusalem? Did they go to the upper room? Did they pray? Yes, they did. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. How did they know they had received the Holy Ghost? Because the Bible says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one mind and one accord, and suddenly there came from heaven as the sound of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them clothed in tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. And Peter later on spoke of the things that you have seen and the things you have heard. And the Bible says, when Simon saw, what did Simon see? He saw exactly what Peter pointed out that those people saw on the day of Pentecost. Praise God. In other words, the apostles were very, very careful. Why were they careful? Well... I suppose if you believed in annihilation of the soul of the wicked dead, it wouldn't make much difference. Because you could just believe what you want to believe and then you die. And if you're unsaved and you just burn in hell, just it's all over with. Big deal. Because if that's true, your punishment would be no greater than some Christian who burns in a car or his home burns up. I was out of town when this happened, and I'm not for sure that I even gave you the message, but one of our ministers, Brother Extell, who is working with Brother Snow up in Stanley and attempting to start the church there in Ladysmith. While I was at General Conference, I received a call. Brother Extell's home caught on fire, and his son was burned alive. Now here's a Christian family. And here's a young Christian boy who had committed his heart to God. He burns up. My friend, if a sinner who lives a vile life on the face of the earth, if hell is no more than that, then I will have to say this, that this young boy suffered as much in his death as any sinner will for his iniquity. But you see, the apostles were very careful because they had rubbed shoulders with the giver of life, Jesus Christ himself. I want you to stand with me. This is the first time I've looked at my watch and I didn't know it was this late. You you see, you, you just can't Suppose he's going to be with you because you can leave him behind. There's no assurance that the Lord's going to go with you unless you have made up your mind to go with him. He said he'd go with you always, even to the end of the world. But the context of the scripture is that that you will walk with him. And the funny thing is that they traveled one whole day without Jesus, supposing he was there, but when they started to find him, it took them three days to find him. And you know, most people who separate themselves from God, 
just for a short period of time. It usually takes longer to find him than what it did to leave him. Why is that? Look at the parable of the prodigal son. You see, the prodigal son had to come to himself in Luke 15. The prodigal son knew what he had to do. And so he had to make his own way back. But you know, you can know that you're saved. But you'll you'll have to have a valid Bible experience. But you can know. You can know. Peter speaks of making your calling and election sure. It's not a guess game. You can know. How can I know? When you receive the same experience that they received in the Bible. Today, you can start your walk with God by repenting, asking God to forgive you. We have a baptismal tank. We can bury you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in water or baptize you. And you can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes right now? I just want you to listen to the music play softly. And as the music plays softly, will you listen to the voice of God? He will walk with you. Hallelujah. Now on both sides of the pulpit, there is a place for you to come and surrender your life to God. Why don't you step out right now? Would you do that right now? Come on right now and surrender your life to God. Praise God. Step out right now. Come on and surrender. Don't just assume you can know. Praise God. Come on right now, would you? Praise God. So would you turn the mic and sing that chorus? Come on right now. Many people are down here praying. Why don't you come and pray with these? Hallelujah. Oh, God. Come on right now, would you? see somebody who does not have a relationship with God and they're questing for that why don't you go and pray with them
Joy. 